What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host Dave Marniswagger. Dave, how you doing, man? Doing well, man. New Kung Fu Kenny. At last, five years waiting. It's all all over. And new Harry Styles. Man, what a time. <laughs> yeah, we, um, we're playing a little bit of catch-up. We did our best of the weekend rankings last uh, week, so check that out on uh, youtube.com slash nostalgia pod so we have a lot to cover today we have uh, some big albums that dropped as you mentioned kung fu kenny kendrick lamar and harry styles we have the mid-season finale of, of better call saul we have the season finale of atlanta uh you know we, we actually had to cut a few things that we wanted to get to from this pod just because there's too much content to get to yeah. so uh <laughs> good good time well, what a time to be alive and uh we got Wayne Jenkins Day next week, which I'm also looking forward oh, to. Oh, gosh, yes. So. <laughs> um, but with all of this good stuff, we're going to start with Flume, um, a Australian DJ that we were, you know, as, as people that don't review a lot of EDM, I think we review, like, the big artists. We were pretty impressed with, um, I think, what we got from, from Flume. Uh, with, I, I believe Skin in 2016 was really the album where I came onto him. Mm-hmm. And he's just been kind of present. I think, especially our love for the new Pope, uh, really like jettisoned some of his music oh, yeah. into my zeitgeist with uh, "Never Be that. Like You." And he he just dropped a new album uh, titled "Palaces," yep, third album. Dave, did did this continue the upward trajectory for you of, of Zoom in your mind? Yeah, well, I think that the thing with Flume is. It's been a while, right? We haven't talked about him, haven't heard much of anything from him since that Hi, This Is Flume mixtape in early 2019. So this is his first release uh, of the pandemic. And I think he's definitely shown a lot of qualities that I like in DJs in terms of uh, the more zany production and uh, varied sonic palette and just trying to mix it up in a way that's at least interesting to the ear and not as uh, homogenized and monotonous as some other more popular invoke house music is these days. So Flume is definitely not one of those guys. He, on the other hand, he does have some more popular traditional stuff. I think of some of his bigger hits, like uh, the Tavolo song, Say It, you know, mm. more, more traditional 2010s uh, EDM goes. But I think Flume still has uh, enough going on under the hood that makes him interesting for people that aren't like hardcore electronic music fans and definitely was looking forward just to hearing what this was going to be because i really did not know uh what to expect and i think palaces was definitely a fun listen for all those reasons i thought it it was pretty varied and in a sense all over the place but when it comes to electronic music that's what i want and just for the sake of things being interesting that's like a full-length listen you know if a DJ is going to go beyond being a performer at, at clubs and, and, and actually put out a full-length record. I want it to be an engaging listen. I thought the Swedish House Mafia uh, comeback album yeah. uh, exceeded my expectations for similar reasons. So I think Fluma Palace is, uh, did, did a pretty admirable job. There was a bunch of songs I thought were pretty cool. Yeah, you know, in listening to this and thinking about the songs that really stick out to me from Flume, and, and he definitely pushes the boundaries and is always doing interesting stuff. I, I think that continued. I think there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff. It sounds very 
very modern, I think, is like the word that comes to mind. Because I think about like Gex or mm. Charlie XCX. Uh, Carolyn Polachek is actually featured on this, but some of her music comes to mind in terms of the production on this. Like really stilted and jumbled type production. Some real like out there like uh, beat drops and, and actual music just kind of like dropping out with some very like sparse sound. So I, I definitely think there's a lot of things he's going for on here. I found myself at times being a little bit like bored by, by parts of the album. Not going to lie. I think his like, it, he can make really beautiful songs, but sometimes it's almost like too beautiful for the sake of like, <laughs> I don't, I'm not as interested anymore and I want the, the next track to come. But overall, I, I definitely think this is an admirable uh, addition to his album collection yeah yeah totally i you know he talked about decamping to his native australia during the start of the pandemic and being more attuned with nature during the creation of this album you know away from hollywood and all that and it's funny like when you hear some of these songs they definitely bring like a more like natural sound at times some of these songs mm -hmm. it's like like the electronic cacophony of like birds almost without <laughs> yeah. just making a bird noise and it's like huh you know cool interesting don't know if i necessarily need to like vibe to the fake sounds of the outdoors you know <laughs> it, it's it's a it's a bit bit unusual but i think to your point about like the modern sound there is some uh pretty blatant hyper pop influence mm. on a few of these tracks i thought uh highest building oh, track yeah. one was pretty awesome you have uh that vocal melody of the feature oklo and then the like repeatedness of the melody in the beat later mm -hmm. on sounded very much uh like hyperpop, like like Gex and all that. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. And then more on the banger side, you have something like OnlyFans, which also mm -hmm. brings that to mind. Yeah, no, definitely. I I think those two stood out. Um, you know, a couple others that um stood out to me like Escape has that like chime in the beginning that reminds me a lot of some of his earlier stuff, like Never Be Like You. But it actually like becomes a pretty like in like pretty traditional house song for a little bit yeah but then it has some like interest it like brings back that like uh, wind chime in it that i think is like a really nice touch throughout um you know a song that i i'm like 50 50 on is jasper song sometimes mm -hmm. when i listen to it i'm like man th this piano is just boring me and then there's other times where i'm like it starts to become pretty um I don't know, pretty weirdly mixed and uh, stilted and it like builds on itself. And I'm like, oh, no, this is actually like pretty dope. So I don't, that, that one just kind of grabs me at different points. Did, did you have any takes on Jasper song? Yeah, I thought the piano definitely stood out to me. I think if anything, that that the, the idea of that song kind of reminds me of the Porter Robinson album mm. that we talked about recently, his comeback album, Nurture, which, again, for the same reasons, like a, I think a notable uh edm album for just kind of engaging you in uh, unusual ways so so yeah a bit of a synergy there um you know i think it is cool that uh, uh flume is just kind of bringing all kinds of sounds going on i mean he cited and actually worked with uh sophie a little bit on the high this is flume mixtape and uh sophie seems to have rubbed off on flume in, in a good way so you know i think to the more traditional side things, you have track two, Say Nothing. Very, very similar to the Tavolo track of, of his past. But, but that Maya feature performance is really strong, you know? Yeah. Uh, tough, tough to tough to argue with that. I, I didn't love the Carolyn Polachek performance, to be Maybe honest. Either. I thought it was kind of a, just kind of a weird 
a weird song, honestly. Ending the album with Holacek um, and then Damon Alburn, I had really high expectations, and I, did, I thought Palaces ends pretty cool, but Albarn on that is also pretty toned down. Um, however, I think Go, which is in between them, yeah, was like a, a, a nice like pick me up near the end of the album, which was was kind of needed. I was definitely losing interest by then. So overall, I think Flume continues to just be a, a creator that we're in, I'm interested in, um, and I, I like hearing I think his singles more so than the albums. I think he just kind of like will drop a track and I'll be like, wow, that's really inventive or creative. So um, someone to stay tuned into for sure. Any last thoughts? Or are you ready to move on? Let's let's go forward to Florence. And the machine with dance fever, um, Florence Welch. I mean, man, I gotta say, she is uh, <laughs> she is someone that I feel like I continually forget about. I kind of put her and Brittany Howard in like similar like spheres in my brain, where like when when they're not making music, I don't find myself going to their music, but then I'll just like stumble onto it and I'll be like holy shit like who has a better voice than this person and really like my takeaway from dance fever while i I think um the uh the last album we talked about highest hope in 2018 definitely left me a little bit disappointed i I think there weren't as many bangers as uh, some of her earlier stuff um like uh, ceremonials or lungs or stuff like that this feels like a return to form and it feels like she's like channeling Stevie Nicks throughout this. And it really feels like her just like letting her voice rip. She's getting super personal lyrically. It's uh, it's pretty great to see. Um, and I, I thought this was a, a really nice album. What was what was your response to listening to Dance Fever? Yeah, that's actually a really funny comment, too, about about like where Florence Welch exists in the culture, because Florence and the Machine is this incredibly successful mm-hmm. act, high grossing act big tours uh force the machine will be doing arenas later this year big act but i feel like i don't think about florence the machine at all in between albums for whatever reason i think probably because it's just a bit uh left of center when it comes to pop uh pop rock it's more that baroque pop indie rock leaning stuff so i guess that's to be expected but yeah i just it, it, everything about florence the machine kind of recedes to the back of the mind in between albums which i guess is a bit unfortunate because as you said not that anyone needs to be reminded of this but florence welsh just incredible vocalist like mm-hmm. absolute top tier singer and continues to wow you you know on from song to song just with these huge performances on these songs that really elevate uh her ability as a singer and those like really big Florence and the Machine songs that put Florence Welch's vocals front and center are the songs I really like. And there's, there's a good amount of those on Dance Fever. So overall, I definitely like this album more than uh, Highest Hope. Yeah, uh, I think that that's a great way to summarize it. And, you know, she, she reminds you who she is right from the first song on this. King is this like slow building, like, thumping track and then it gets to like the 240 mark and she just comes crushing in with like these amazing high-reaching vocals and it really just like sets the tone for the album i was really impressed with that as an opening track so triumphant it really reminds me of a lot of the stuff from from lungs like dog days and, and stuff like that um yeah and like you said i think there's a couple other tracks sprinkled throughout here that really fit that mold but overall i think just even the the sound that she's going for on this feels 
more in line, you know, um, the last album was very piano driven and very much uh, like personal stripped down. You think about like the highlight for me was probably Grace, um, mm. you know, a song about her sister from that, that album. And it's a really like quiet piano tune where she's subdued in her vocals. And there's, there's some moments where things are subdued, but it almost always leads in some big crescendo. And um, I think it, I think that works more, especially when it's like uh, guitar driven for her, for sure. Um, what other tracks stood out to you? I saw that you were nodding your head to King. Oh yeah, I think King, that's just a textbook, like Florence, big chorus. The way the song builds up to that chorus with also a really engaging drum line. Awesome track, awesome single. Uh, then track two, I really liked as well, Free, uh, just because that has that, that more dancing net, uh, vibe there. And it was interesting to kind of read and listen to Florence talk about the inspiration for this album, which was her kind of fascination with the dancing plague, a.k.a choreomania of the middle uh, medieval times middle ages and just the fascination of people just dancing uncontrollably dancing till they drop and things like that and trying to fit that into her own uh own music kind of interesting you know i think um a song i really enjoyed towards the end there was my love which is uh super mm-hmm. uptempo still has that big uh Florence chorus, but also probably like the bassiest a Florence of the Machine song can get, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pretty pop leaning as far as far as Florence can go. Um, and I think it's pretty interesting to to look into this record and see that Jack Antonoff was all over the conception yeah. of this thing. However, I think this is probably one of the best, better efforts from Jack in quite some time because Jack seemed to be fitting in into what Florence the Machine was doing and it doesn't we didn't feel like drowned out by like the textbook trademark Jack Antonoff bedroom pop that's been getting a little old lately as we hear female pop singer after female pop singer do it you know this didn't feel like yeah no it it wasn't sleepy at all and I I think that that was really welcome um, because that was my fear is that she was going to kind of continue in that direction um yeah, you know, I think you really hit some of the highlights for me there. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's nice to hear her trying things, but not really extending beyond what, what makes her so great. You mentioned that, like, danciness, which I think is definitely something that comes out in a few of these tracks. Um, but then you get tracks like Girls Against God, which is really just her, like, singing so beautifully throughout the whole thing and just carrying it with her vocals. And it has that, like typical Florence like triumphant um sound near the end uh, in terms of the the chorus all coming in um her music all kind of swelling at the same time and it's like oh yeah this is why she's been so great and it's nice to see her like reestablish herself you mentioned that she's going on this tour and you know it's it's funny because like we, we talk about this a lot who are like the rock headliners and it's like I mean she's really like establishing herself I mean it's like her chili peppers i mean you gotta think like arctic monkeys whenever they tour will be up there but like yeah yeah who else is really at that that top sphere with her Brittany howard if she wanted to be could be i suppose yeah. uh, and especially with foo fighters being a bit in limbo uh, right. due to tragic circumstances yeah it's uh definitely significant you know um i guess halsey if she continued to rock pivot comes to mind too right um, but yeah i mean huge act i mean she's been a festival draw for for a while now but Playing arenas, uh, I think, speaks for itself, honestly. Totally. Um, 
kind of cool to see if you look look at the credits here on this. In addition to Jack Antonoff, you also have Maggie Rogers doing some background vocals. <laughs> you have uh, Dave Bailey from Glass Animals involved here. Uh, figure that out. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think it was a, a, a really really awesome album, especially because there's a lot of hype for this or a lot of expectation for this. It's been been a long time, 2018 since the yeah. last Florence album. So I think it needed to be uh, a really effective record, especially because Highest Hope was a bit middling. So uh, total success for sure. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to be adding a track from Florence and the Sheen onto our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. So search that, check it out, and like it. But let's talk Harry Styles now. The man who is just dominating culture right now i mean he is just everywhere um and and i think it makes a lot of sense i mean he came up with one of the biggest boy bands uh, of all time with one direction Mm -hmm. um being like the the clear standout from that group and has had the most successful solo career sorry zane fans i know that uh you you actively root against the pod at this point but um yeah i mean we we've talked about harry a few times on, on this podcast we talked about him just a few weeks ago with coachella and his coachella set which grabbed the zeitgeist everybody was talking about i think people are still talking about yeah shania um, twain obviously and and he's doing a, a big tour uh right now so oh, yeah. people are yeah people are seeing him and he's he's performing um and uh, you know we we don't even need to really get into it but also a very uh high profile relationship right now that well, is uh it's all over the album. Kind of, you kind of got to get into it. <laughs> I guess that's a good point. There's literally a song directly about it, but um, put the pop in the cinema. Yeah, he's uh, he's everywhere, and um, you know, you, you look on Spotify. He's the fourth uh, most played artist in the world in the last month. I think. Yeah, it's pretty insane. And so we get Harry's Harry's house. Um, you know, after Fine Line, which was dubbed one of the 500 greatest albums of all time by Rolling Stone when they updated their list uh, a few years back. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we liked aspects of Fine Line, but I think a lot of it we were like, eh, I don't know if it totally works for us. So, And I think that was like, like the main takeaway. It's not a perfect album. And so we get Harry's house, and does this continue to mm-hmm. like establish him as an artist? I mean, beyond celebrity, is he now established as like a good artist for, to you, Dave? Huh. Well, th- now that is the question. Do you want to be in Harry's house? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Fine line. As you said, work in progress, I think, is a charitable interpretation of Harry's second solo album. Uh, self-titled debut album. The more ro- rock-leading stuff. A Sign of the Times. And, you know, this, that Sign of the Times is back with Harry's house, I think. But it's been kind of interesting to see the direction he's taken his, his sound because he's very far removed, honestly, from self-titled album one, mm-hmm. you know, the, the rock over, overtures are basically gone and he's kind of followed through with the biggest hits from fine line, watermelon sugar and golden and, and falling. Those are the tracks that seem to have taken, taken root in what the kind of music he wants to make. And with Harry's house, I think that, that that's pretty evident. Uh, and the question, though, is whether Harry's immense celebrity and popularity and likability and all those things, whether that's actually matched with a fully formed musical identity. He clearly did not have a musical identity on fine line. That was pretty obvious. And I, I'm still a bit skeptical of if he has one now, because I think Harry's house is incredibly safe. And yeah. and. 
I don't want to say low effort, but he hasn't gotten really any deeper with his lyrics. And that's totally fine. Totally cool. He's an A-lister. You know, it's not like we, we need, we need him to be Bob Dylan or anything, Mm -hmm. but given, given the comparisons, he's kind of, openly invited and people have attached themselves to him like Joni Mitchell or Mick Jagger's recent comments. I just don't think like the body of work has been established uh, to this point for me, clearly for other people it has, because as you said, he's going to be on one of probably the second biggest tour of the year behind bad bunny in terms of total dollars earned, perhaps BTS is above them too. I mean, he's he's on basically a nonstop tour until the end of next year. Next year, he'll be playing 10 shows in a row at Madison Square Garden and 10 shows in a row at the Forum in L.A. Like, he's an absolute superstar, and he's going to have the biggest first week sales of the year, 450 to 500,000 is the projection right now. So he's successful. He doesn't need (laughs) need any advice from me. But I, I still think he's a bit of a work in progress. And at the very least, I think we will continue to hear probably new directions in the future because i just don't think he really went in a new direction from fine line harry's house sounds kind of the same in the sense that it's kind of undecided to me so yeah i mean i think i think that's all spot on the question for me becomes like does he need to be uh pushing those those lyrical boundaries getting deep because like you said his music has become incredibly popular on tiktok mm-hmm. just because it's kind of made for that <laughs> and it's it's not only that his fan base is skews younger a lot of the people using tiktok I, I think grew up with one direction and then harry's a couple albums so it's a lot of fans just already kind of leaning towards how do we use the harry song here but like those moments like uh, the as it was like aha take on me type thing is like perfectly made for like a a montage of pictures or videos and it's like when you make stuff like that like why do you why do you have to it's kind of like like the jack harlow debate almost in a sense it's like does he really have to push himself to be better when he can make these like 30 second clips and people are like oh fuck this is like the best thing i could possibly put over this like image of my my dog doing this for this dance right you know Uh, but surely like he's the guy he's, who's going to be in perhaps the third highest grossing tour of the year. Surely we can ask for a little bit more <laughs> well, musical quality, right? Well, I, I have to say, I do think this is a step up, and it feels a little bit I little agree bit it's better. I, I do agree it's better. Um, you know, and it starts off right away with music for a sushi restaurant, which I think is, like, a very, like, fun track. It's, like, toned yeah, down. Groovy. Yeah, groovy is a good word for it. And then it hits that, like, ending, like, 80s, like... I don't know, like Prince almost sounding like like the horns kind of pop in and it's just so fun. Um, as it was just a few tracks later, I think is a really fun song. Um, and I, it's actually kind of funny because I think that this album could have felt a little bit more deep, you know, like as it was, for example, <laughs> has a whole like third person point where he's basically like, talking about like, being lonely, like mental health issues, um, feeling disconnected from people. And there's a, there's a, a world where he makes that like a stripped down acoustic song similar to like, um, what's the one from uh, like Cherry or something like that from mm. the last album. And it feels a lot deeper, but because he kind of keeps at this like 70s, 80s light pop sound throughout a lot of the record, 
you don't really sink into those lyrics as deeply. And so I, I think intentionally he's trying to like expose what parts of himself he feels like he wants to, but in like the safest way possible, like you mentioned, he keeps it always upbeat, always kind of moving. The only track that kind of, I think, bumps up against that is Matilda, which I think I've seen a lot of love from Harry fans about, you know, being a, a track that's pretty thoughtful about a, a woman who's been like abused and, and just like not kind of given the love that he feels like she deserves. And I, I think that that's a track where he tried to kind of go in that deep direction, but yeah, a lot of it he just want he wants it to just be fun, and why not? Like you're selling out these arenas, so you're really gonna make people come and like listen to you just like strumming on guitar. Yeah, well, I, I think for me though, like I don't think of uh, as it was, which is already a number one song, already over half a billion plays on Spotify, crazy big song already. I I don't think of that song as like super fun, just because it's so light. You know, oh, it's really? like it it I don't know, it's just. It's just it's just kind of quiet to me. Like I don't think the production does enough for me. I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons to Aha, as you said, but I, I think the Harry songs I enjoy the most. Are, I just need a little bit more on the production side of things. I think of like Sunflower Volume Six, Soft Fine Line, for example. Mm. Uh, music for a sushi restaurant comes to mind here. Uh, I really love the tempo on. Really, just the whole like pulsing production on late night talking track mm. two on Harry's house with the synths going on in there. I th I think it's the, the the quieter, softer stuff for me is just I I just find it a little dull still from Harry just because I feel like his because his performance is intentionally so down the middle. I just I don't I just don't find it as engaging as something that is a little funner, like Little Freak or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's fair. You know, um, the second half of this album, I definitely was not as much of a fan of. Um, but I like a song like uh, "Boyfriends," which he's obviously going for some sort of like <clears throat> feminist perspective here. Um, definitely uh, did not work for me as well. It didn't grab me as well. But I'm sure a lot of his fans, a lot of his female fans, will probably really gravitate towards those songs, or even his like queer fans will probably go for a song like that as well. Um, you know, I, I think cinema is probably cinema and then daydreaming back to back was probably like the last time I really like, yeah. was like, Oh, I'm, I'm enjoying these tracks and cinema. We kind of mentioned, uh, alludes to his relationship with Olivia Wilde. Uh, I think referring to her as the cinema <laughs> and yeah. him as, uh, the pop, which is the pop in the cinema, baby, oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there's, there's a bunch of references to Olivia all over the album here and there but that that's definitely the most overt yeah you know song about her of course yeah so that that and daydreaming were like two tracks that stood out feels like he's been listening to like like more recent like uh i don't know vampire weekend maybe you know how it was like a little bit more like hoppy <laughs> and like i don't know 80s 70s infused on it kind of like a weird turn for him but okay yeah. sure I, i'm here for it Right, right, right. Yeah, I like Daydreaming as well for the production. I also thought Satellites was at least notable because it's a pretty uh, obvious example of the current 80s new wave pop influence that we hear all the time now from mainstream artists. Uh, yeah, so I think overall the production on Harry's House at least was more interesting to me than Fine Line. I think, you know, lyrically is still probably kind of at the same level. Perhaps he's a bit more playful on Harry's House, like even if it's not like the most like 
expertly written prose or anything. He just has like funny lines, you know, whether he's talking about food, whether he's horny, whether he's referencing offhand doing coke, whatever it is. Like, it at least is like I think funny, fun, more enjoyable wordplay uh, this time around. So, yeah, I think it's definitely a, a step up. But uh, you know, like I said, I think there's pretty obvious to expect more genre pivots in the future from Harry yeah. Styles. You know, for someone who kind of openly um, expresses, you know, uh, or references like gender fluidity and more uh, queer fashion, but will never actually comment on it or acknowledge it at all. I'd have to imagine he has a similar kind of view to his own art. And I'm sure we'll hear that in time. But in the meantime, we're going to hear a lot of Harry all the time because he's going to be touring until the end of next year. And Mm -hmm. of course, he's in a high profile celebrity relationship as well. So uh, Harry Styles will be around for the very foreseeable future to the delight of millions of people, obviously. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be adding a track onto our Nostalgia Best of 2020, 2020, 2020, 2022 playlist. But let's move on to an album that came out two weeks ago. Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers from Kendrick Lamar. Damn, it's been a minute, man. <laughs> uh, 2017, we talked about Damn. We haven't really heard much from Mr. Kendrick until this album dropped. I mean, I, I guess we got a single the week before right the heart part five um yeah give give me your your quick review of that track well it's just it was just cool to hear another entry in the heart series a decade plus spanning promote a single set of songs that kendrick lamar has released usually in the anticipation of his forthcoming albums i believe heart part two is actually on his mixtape overly dedicated the subsequent three four five have all been one-off singles. Four, of course, was in the lead-up to Damn. Now we have five. Notable music video, deep fakes of Nipsey Hussle and Kanye West. Justy Smollett. Kobe Bryant. Yep, Smollett. Uh, In a sense, setting the tone in a little bit for what to expect from Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. It's not my favorite of the Heart series. I think Part 4 is probably still my favorite, but I think it was just really cool that uh, he released another one of these tracks, and it I swear to God, I had really been thinking of was God, is he gonna release another heart song uh, before this album? Because once once we knew for for sure that Mr. Around the Big Steppers was coming, and then he does it like the next day. I felt I felt really smart, even if it was probably really obvious. But as you said, uh, Kendrick's been gone. You know that that that's he he's very unique in hip hop for this in this manner that he can be more or less absent for. I mean, it's been five years since the album. We had that Black Panther soundtrack at the beginning of 2018. That was probably the last gasp of when we heard him, the tours, once the tours stopped in 2018. Since then, though, completely silent. He doesn't talk about stuff. He's just, he's just a ghost. Yeah, and we didn't he did really a few anything. features with Keem. But yeah, and that, then he pops back up with Keem because Keem's his cousin and now signed to his new record label, PG Lang. It's like, even then, then it was like someone super connected to him that he would bother to, you know, be around for. And now we know that this is his final album for TDE, Top Dog Entertainment, a label he's been signed to since 2005. We still don't really know what extent PG Lang is as a multimedia enterprise. So we just know him and Keem are involved and Dave Free helped Kendrick found it. So a lot of TBD there. But regardless, it's the final 
final TDE record and obviously the the last Kendrick album for some time, if we're being honest. I doubt he's going to uh, come back super soon again, but who, who knows? Maybe in a sense this was him just kind of getting out of his getting out of his deal, and he's going to rush back soon, a la Frank Ocean. Who can say? Um, but obviously, a ton of anticipation for, for Kendrick. And, you know, it's sold over 300,000, almost 300,000 first week with no physical albums available to purchase. So still pretty impressive for an artist who is more or less completely absent. The anti-Drake. Drake is never gone. Kendrick is usually always gone. And now Kendrick's back. And uh, it's not the album I expected to hear, but it's still very much a Kendrick Lamar album. And I think very interesting. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, how you, you expect Kendrick to take some time off. And I, I totally agree. His albums are so dense. I mean, like, literally, you, you could dissect this and we're, we're going to do our best to kind of highlight some of the, the biggest points. But there's so much in these albums and so much that he's going for thematically um lyrically um that it's just it's a lot to work through and we're going to be doing a kendrick lamar rankings of all of his albums a little bit uh later on so we're not going to be talking about where this falls today i actually don't think i could talk about where it falls because i want to listen like one or two more times to really get a sense of it and see how it sticks with me um so just uh want to put that out there anyways we got the album uh, you, you turn it on, you give it a listen, and you said it wasn't the album you expected, but did you leave this album satisfied? Were you like, Kendrick still got it, man? Oh, he's definitely still got it. And I think the bigger question is whether I want to run this one back a lot versus running back his other records. You know, mm-hmm. Pimp Butterfly was on my best albums of the decade list. Money Trees from Good Kid Max City was on my best songs of the decade list. Mm-hmm. You know? damn a huge record the only hip-hop album to win the pulitzer prize you know like there's 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 a big body of work to live up to at this point this is fifth album and there's of course the mixtapes and the compilations and everything and i don't know i don't know i could probably say i do know that i don't want to listen to this one as much as the other ones in terms of like picking out individual songs that i like but I still have a lot of admiration for a lot of what's going on here. And I think it's a very interesting and probably important record for how Kendrick is approaching his artistry. Cause it's his first album to be anywhere close to this personal, mm-hmm. you know, and you think about it on the surface, like, Oh, well, good kid, Matt city is about his youth and his coming of age. And to pimp a butterfly is about his role in society as a black man. But those are, a bit more surface level or at least guarded looks, you know, to a butterfly, much more top level societal things, right? Mm-hmm. Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers is kind of really peeling back and showing you who he really is and not being afraid to show uh, some warts and blemishes and things people might not like to hear or find out about. And I think that's really interesting because, I mean, how many other artists could actually pull something like this off in as compelling a way as Kenny. Now, again, mm-hmm. th- th- that doesn't mean I want to listen to some of these songs all the time. Like the, the joint with Taylor Page, I'm not going to listen to that again. We cry. Oh, together. you don't, you don't want to hear them screaming at each other for uh, four minutes. Can't say I do literally but... screaming too. Taylor Page was like losing her voice during it. Amazing <laughs> performance from her, but like, yeah, not, yeah. not what I want to roll back all the time. 
you're, right. you're not you're not at the the party and you're like let's put on cry together right now uh, i i think not but <laughs> there's still a lot of things to like you said digest about this album and uh it's certainly not boring no definitely not um you know it, it it's kind of like split right so it's an 18 track album runs about an hour yeah. 12 hour 13 he teased the, it as a double album even yeah. though it's actually shorter than some of his other albums but yeah it's technically two sides mr morale and the big steppers and uh there, there's a lot of parallels there um in in terms of like the track listing the songs and, and how they kind of like align with each other if you did split them down the middle um i have to say i i did not take the time to kind of like piece those together yet and piece together the, the symmetry on it did you do that dave no, again, it's one of the huge failures of uh, Spotify, digital, DSPs, digital streaming platforms, that they don't make something like that evident when it's like a dual disc situation. Um, but I, I definitely think that there's um, a lot to like on here, and like you said, I think some moments and some some choices that probably aren't going to find me coming back to it. Um, and you know, it kind of starts right away with United in Grief for me which was like a very like disjointed and like very, I'm not even sure exactly how to describe it. I think the first thing that came to mind was it felt like a song that could have been on untitled unmastered almost in mm. a sense. It was like, so like stilted and like yeah. kind of like jumping around from sound and what it was going for that. I was like, huh, this is, are we going to be getting this all album? Luckily, you know, the next track N95, which I really like was a lot more traditional sounding as a, as a track, but it feels a lot like, like a Kendrick thing to kind of put this very challenging, very uh, singular song right at the beginning. And he's like, this is what you're going to get. And like, you're either going to sit with it or not. And I, I appreciate that. Although, mm. I, uh, like I said, United in Grief, not a track I'm going to run back. Although I do like, like when the drums kind of come in at that, like yeah. you know, minute mark. It's pretty cool. Classic example of like, you know, the, the Kenny voice as it is. Uh, but yeah, like he grieves different. Got it. But, uh, yeah, N95 um, has been the biggest hit to this point. And when you see that title, it's like, oh, God, what's he going to what's he going to go on about about masks yeah. or the vaccine? Or, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. I hope he doesn't say something I don't want to hear, you know. And it's not that he hasn't expressed like, you know, questionable views or anything before. <laughs> he certainly has. He did it on damn, you know, you go and listen for it, which is totally fine, obviously. Uh, I think N95, you know, like doing it, whether it's the you out of pocket refrain yeah. or just just the, the overall aggression, once mm -hmm. he builds up to it, reminds me a lot of DNA. Yeah. Uh, good off damn, to be honest. Yeah, that, that, that's a good comparison. I, I also like his ad libs. You ugly as fuck. Like, just <laughs> so random, but I appreciate it. And I think the like taking, like, taking the mask off type of thing was like a clever way to like frame it even if like you know it's coming at a time when covid numbers are rising again in the country so uh you know maybe not 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 the message we want to be sending but anyways i think that song rips um you know a few tracks later father time with sampa oh, i really love gosh. and hearing sampa back on the track man i was like just give us the album dog just just do it we need it the people need it we have had kendrick lamar come back first album since 2017 we're still waiting for rihanna and frank ocean for an album since 2016 you know what after that and my my, my beloved asap rocky 2018 sampha though we haven't had a sampha album since 2017 and every time we hear him on someone else's song 
it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I think whether it's Kendrick Lamar, Hetty One, the Drake cuts back in the day, of course Solange, he's un, uh, batting a thousand uh, on these features. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Need no chaser, baby. Yeah. Oh my God, it's such a good performance. No chaser. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely uh, a standout to me. Uh, well, what are the, what other tracks like stood out to you? What did you like? Well, honestly. Kendrick on Father Time too. I really like the, the the storytelling on there. I love the production too. The way the beat drops in, but just the presence of the keys there. Uh, and then Kendrick just being like, when Kanye got back with Drake, I was very confused and basically saying that like he don't didn't doesn't think he could have done that if he was in that situation. Man, I, he went there. I love to hear it. You know. Um, also shows how recent some of these songs are because he's directly referencing something from last December, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think Father Times, I think I think it's honestly my favorite track on the mm. album overall. Um, but I liked a lot of his other stuff too. I thought um, the Die Hard was uh, pretty cool. I thought the, the Blast feature was very strong coming off a really strong feature on the Kalani album we just got. And I thought Kendrick was really great on Die Hard. Um, you know, Rich Spirit, it's been getting a lot of love. Uh, you know, I think the hook, the flow is a bit different from Kendrick there. I think the production, uh, little little tweaks there here and there are really cool. Uh, I thought Count Me Out, you know, his flow again on there, really fun. Uh, the choir there in the background, really nice. Um, Silent Hill with Kodak Black, I think is a really good song. And then kind of brings to the fore that it's like, you hear Kodak Black on this. I think you hear him first on the interlude. And you keep hearing Kodak Black on the record. It's like, yeah, it's been a huge talking point. Obviously, is it a provocation? What is the what is the intent? Intent? You had an album where he's kind of talking and shedding so much light about his family and, and what what his mother went through and Kendrick's complicated relationship with with own his own uh, women in his life, whether it's his mom or his fiance, whatever it is. And then you have the repeated presence of someone who has been, you know, directly charged with uh, domestic violence and whatnot mm-hmm. in Kodak Black. And it's like, on the other hand, he's far from the, uh, like, I, I think Craig Jenkins put this really well in his review. Most rappers, uh, if you made a list of rappers that didn't associate with people associated with domestic violence, it'd be very short. So mm-hmm. I think it's just for me, it's like, just kind of weird to hear like Kodak be like a narrator of a big portion of this album given the themes of the album when clearly Kodak Black as a person through his own actions is at odds with those themes. This definitely took took me aback. Yeah, I definitely thought that was a weird choice, but you know, Kendrick is also very thoughtful and he might have picked Kodak out to be provocative. He might have been trying to say something, you know, given some of the themes of the album, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Um, only Kendrick really has that answer, and I doubt he's going to explicitly tell us. So. He ain't going to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, speculate away. Um, for me, I mean, it definitely like stood out, but I was able to get past it and just kind of, like you said, kind of mark it up to like a lot of rappers associate with people like this, although Kendrick is kind of at a different level, and maybe we should expect more from him on that. Um, you know, just kind of moving forward, though, through the album and tracks I, I liked, I thought Purple Hearts, the track after We Cry Together, was very similar to Love, 
um, off Dam, um, and just kind of that like duet with a female artist, Summer Walker in this case. But I had a Ghostface Killer uh, feature at the end, which I was like, damn, Ghostface still got it, man. He just kind of he came on, kind of crushed it, and just got out like a minute in uh, left in the song, and uh, that was so welcome to hear. Um, yeah, what other what other tracks do I, do I like here? Um, uh, I, I think one that we probably should talk about oh, yeah. is Auntie Diaries. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll we'll get there in a second. But wh- what other tracks did, were you digging hmm. as you went through? Yeah, we. we uh, I don't really have anything else more to say about We Cry Together. I, I actually don't even know how effective I find it, just because it's like beating you over the head repeatedly. And it, it, I think the subtleties honestly kind of lost. I thought Taylor Page was really, really crushing it. Um, wouldn't mind hearing her dabble in a mixtape, kind of like when I heard Zoe Kravitz on Ray Schremer back in the day, mm. you know? But, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was disgrading, honestly, you know? And not what I expect from Kendrick. Uh, I think just thematically, it's really interesting overall on this album. It's like Kendrick peeling back things about himself and his feelings and, like, what he says on a few different tracks about like cancel culture and people holding their tongue and you're killing artists. And I find it interesting that like, I'm not surprised that he has these, these feelings about these things. If you remember back when um, Spotify was going to not promote Exorcist Natacion on playlists due to allegations against him, Kendrick came out of his uh, cave unprovoked and spoke out against that action. And of course that was pulled back anyway. Kendrick has like, a lot of like really specific thoughts about things and hearing him kind of talk, uh, you know, reference Kyrie Irving and like talk about like, uh, you know, people having to sign their own wills if they speak out of line and stuff. It's kind of interesting to hear him point these things out because like, I want to know like, what are like the thoughts that you have that you feel like you're not allowed to share, mm-hmm. you know? Later on the record, he's like kind of he kind of references how he's been like put on this huge pedestal by society and by white people and 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 all that and like how he's like you know he he's very aware of his own uh, misgivings and 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 insecurities and shortcomings as a person and he gets into that you know as a man and his relationship and things like that later. But I'm curious, it's like, are you just kind of saying this as a point of view because that's how you feel? Or do you actually have more to say on the matter that you're mm-hmm. just holding back? Because he doesn't actually take it any further. I thought it was kind of weird to like bring something like that up, but then kind of like keep it moving and move on and look back on yourself again. I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a interesting point, especially I, I think the song that you're referencing probably is Savior with uh, Keem, where he kind of talks about yeah. that like being put on that pedestal and kind of being seen as like the savior of rap but also of like racial politics and like a, a voice for like change in the country i mean w- when you make a album like to pimp a butterfly people are going to i think naturally kind of think that of you you know that he obviously had a singular vision for that album executed it perfectly uh an incredibly thoughtful album it, to some people it's considered the best album of all time that's how you know uh that's how well it was made and con- and conceived. And so, I, you know, I wonder, though, like, 
are there people out there that like when something happens, like when there's uh, you know a, a murder of a black man or a black woman, it, are people like I gotta hear from Kendrick on this? Like, is, we gotta get Kendrick in front of a camera and talk about this, or is he is he feeling because he gets so much notoriety for his thoughtfulness on these albums that potentially he feels this pressure, even though maybe the expectations aren't there as well. I, I don't know. You know, I, yeah. I, I know I don't necessarily look for Kendrick to be like the voice of all black people or racial politics in the United States in general. He definitely makes interesting songs about it. And I think very thoughtful songs about it, right. but yeah, I think, I think some of that like savior complex might also be um, self-imposed in some way. Um, but I, I agree. I, I'd like to hear him talk a little bit further about it and expand on it. Because um, I'm sure it's not just, yeah, I, I have all this pressure and then no, no other thoughts about it. That's not really who Kendrick has proven himself to be. Mm. Um, you know, kind of looking um, down the track, though, I mean, uh, after Savior, which I thought Savior was okay. Um, you know, it Crown comes a few songs before it. And I've seen people kind of being lukewarm on Crown. How did that, that track hit for you? It's much, It's very toned back for him. Yeah, not, not my favorite for sure. I liked uh, I like Savior more. I actually thought Keem was pretty solid on this. I know some people are still a bit lukewarm on Keem as a performer. I was a big fan of the Melodic Blue last year, um, and I thought him and him and Kendrick have a pretty good chemistry. I liked Savior a bit more. Yeah, Crown Crown definitely um, uh, one of my least favorite tracks. Yeah, I I agree. Didn't didn't totally work for me, but I know some people are really getting some love for it. So Auntie Diaries has been a pretty controversial song, um, a track where Kendrick is really storytelling um, about a uh, aunt who was a uh, a trans female um, and basically how he originally was taught to perceive people in the trans community and then how he his perspective grew over time and as he was educated and um what it's really been drawing a lot of criticism for is his use of uh, the F slur in regards to people in the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think there's a couple ways to look at it. Um, I think overall the message Kendrick wants you to take away is like a lot of people in the black community have the perspective that I had towards this, you know, the LGBTQIA plus community, specifically the trans community and had this very bigoted perspective. And as I had this personal experience, I grew to see and understand what these people go through and in his mind legitimize their existence. Um, I do think he could have gone about it a little differently. I think, I think he uses the F slur about like 10 times on, yeah. on this track and, you know, maybe, maybe tone it back uh, about 10 times, but I think overall, like, the message was good, execution not so great. Where'd you fall on it, though? Yeah, I think I think that's that's pretty accurate. I mean, you know, saying my auntie is a man now. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I think that's the, that that that's kind of like the crux of it for me. It's like you have these good intentions. I'm pretty sure I understand what you're saying and how you think, and good. Overall, if this song has positive impact in that way. Of other people making that connection good good thing mm -hmm. but he's doing it in a very ham-fisted way mm -hmm. you know if you're gonna dead name your aunt you know yeah you're gonna use the f slur a million times it's 
it's just not as effective as you think it is. I think it's really ham-fisted and really pales in comparison to something quite similar to this, which would be Smile by Jay-Z off 444, Mm. where he talks and reveals about his mother coming out of the closet publicly. Mm -hmm. I think Jay-Z handled that with significantly more grace than Kenny being like, oh, my auntie is a man now. And like, he's like processing how he was thinking. Mm. I get it. But the way he's putting it out there publicly, I just... I, I just found it a bit crass. And it's also been very frustrating to see Kendrick fans push back on criticism of this song, especially criticism in the queer community. Um, because trans people shouldn't have to like explain why this song isn't as good as it should be. You know, that's also very unfair to them. So I think people should be a bit more open to listening to that kind of criticism. Um, yeah, overall, I just... I, I just don't think it's actually good allyship, a song no. like this. It's well-intentioned, for sure, but I, it's not actually, in execution, good allyship. So, frustrating uh, misstep for someone that we associate with so much greatness, like Kendrick. Mm-hmm. You know, he's held up as a great storyteller, a great songwriter, but that was not good songwriting. Yeah, I completely agree. Um you know, after Auntie Diaries, you only have a few more tracks um, on this. You have Mr. Morale, the, the title track, Mother, Sober, and Mirror. Did any of those hit for you, or did it kind of fizzle yeah. out from there? Well, I think Mother, I Sober is a huge highlight, because that's uh-huh. where uh, Kendrick talks about was it his mother's um, sexual assault in the past, and how he reckoned with that. And is that also where he talks about his own sex addiction? Like... I think the, so. the, the the foul taste of Auntie Diaries is washed out pretty quickly because then you have this amazing storytelling once again from Kendrick, you know, super personal, as personal as he's ever been. That like, I think a song like that's like kind of the ethos of Mr. Round the Big Steppers because that is an example of what's so new about this album for Kendrick's standards because he was never that personal before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the way he delivers it even is in like this hushed like tone, you know, kind of whispering almost, and that, I think it really adds to the the meaning behind it and kind of the way he's sharing this. It feels very intimate, which I like. Um, so yeah, you know, we we kind of jumped around, but I think there were probably like nine or ten tracks that we really liked and thought were pretty good. A couple that were missteps, and I think everything else in between. I mean, there's a couple like interludes and things like that, but for the most part. A lot of this album hit for us. Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of left sitting with it. You know, it, just in general, it, it's not up there with Pimp a Butterfly in my mind um, or even Good Kid, Mad City. But, you know, is it is it falling near damn? You know, damn, I think a more like commercialized perspective from Kendrick and this a, a much more personal perspective. Does it do they kind of fall on the same level? I don't know. This is kind of where I'm, I'm thinking with my rankings as we talk. So yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely the uh, the crux of it right there. And we will do Kendrick Lamar full rankings. And there's a lot to talk about because he's got more than just albums too. So looking forward to handling that in full later in the year. So make sure you subscribe at YouTube.com/slash/NostalgiaPod so you don't miss when those rankings do go live. Stay plugging. All right, we're we're done with music for today. We're gonna move on to TV, where Made for Love. Season two uh, has dropped on HBO, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 
the the full thing is out and Dave, I mean, just give me your your quick uh, feelings on season one of Made for Love, where you you were a fan, if I remember. Oh yeah, I thought Made for Love season one was really strong and also really surprising because it came out of nowhere and was really that first uh, HBO Max original series that I pay attention to and really enjoy. And of course, Hacks would quickly follow suit there, but awesome Kristen Milioti vehicle, part of a huge year for her alongside of course hulu's palm springs which she is the star as well Mm -hmm. and it was just a really i think fun half hour about you know lampooning big tech and uh everything going on with all all, all those dystopian themes that are are a bit familiar it's not necessarily that we went on any super new new lanes or anything here we kind of understand all these themes already but the miliati performance the Billy Madison performance, the Ray Romano performance, all very winning. I thought Miliati and Madison have really awesome chemistry that just made it really a uh, really fun tr- uh, fun season, fun fun series. And I think Made for Love season two coming back when it did during this huge glut of April and May twenty twenty two, we're getting so much television before the Emmy deadline. Just I'm not seeing really any coverage of Made for Love season two at all. I think people have let this one slide because there's so much else on TV. And I find that a bit unfortunate because I thought season two actually exceeded my expectations because it switched things up in a way I didn't expect. Yeah. You know, season one, I think really stood out, like you said, as this like take uh, and this satire on, big tech um but also i think it asked some like interesting questions about like partnership um and like like personal sacrifice for people that you love um and season two i mean i think it just ratchets ratchets everything up to like the next level and conceptually i think is like a bit out there um in some ways by the end of the season i mean you're you're totally in like uh like trippy like i did did i take an lsd tab before i watched these last few episodes type territory but it's all it all really hits and like you said you get some really great performances from the the top three build there right kristen miliati billy magnuson and ray romano and i think romano especially in the second season really stood out to me obviously he's been doing some more um like serious roles um in the last uh five to seven years so um it's it's great to see him continue on that but overall i thought season two kind of continued um season one's success i don't know if i liked it more than season one i think there's some things that didn't totally work for me but there's definitely some really really fun parts to it that i i I found myself laughing and just wanting to kind of keep being with these characters you felt the same way yeah, yeah, for sure. I think what I really enjoyed about season two is that there's an important switch up that we're not seeing Hazel trying to escape the hub again. She's not trying to escape right. Magnuson. She is in the hub with him, and it's kind of like an agent on the inside. And I just really like how they kind of flip that around. Obviously, our ending position for this series sets up a vastly different season three if we are to get a season three. It has not been renewed at this time. But once we start really going deep into the AI stuff, and they, they really just continue where season one left us, where we, we get revealed that Hazel has a chip in her head. And they take it so much farther. You know, I really like that I didn't just kind of run back the core plot mechanics of season one. So the fact that we switched that up a bit makes it interesting enough that you can just really sit with 
and love those three central performances. And meanwhile, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jay Jackson, the uh, drove from Insecure. Jasper. Yeah, the guy who plays Jasper. Elevated series regular here. You get a bit of Russ Hanneman again from Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, I just I think I think it's it's pretty fun, and it's also it doesn't wear out as welcome. It's only four hours. Yeah, Russ Hanneman is uh, just absolutely dynamite in this. Uh, his name is Chris Diem Top Topolos. Uh, yeah, definitely Diem Topolos. Yeah. My apologies. Greek, um, but yeah, he's he's just hilarious every time he pops up, and him and his buddy like basically failing their way to the top of the FBI is just hilarious and such a I feel like a funny comment on the that agency in general. Um, but yeah, I think you you mentioned a really good point, which is by flipping the power dynamic on, on this season, right? So you have Byron basically trying to win Hazel back by giving her whatever she wants with, with all this, you know, control within Goggle, um, um, you know, letting her like spend time with her dad, um, taking care of him, like all, all this stuff is uh, really nice because it not only does it allow you to kind of like sympathize and, and I think build builds up Byron as a character as someone that you can at least like, like a little bit and he becomes you know enjoyable to spend time with whereas there were times in season one where he's just like so despicable and so unhuman it's like okay well it's hard to totally uh mesh with a robot all the time um but it, it really allows all the other parts of the show to kind of soften as well you know like like the stuff with zelda um i, th- I found to be really funny and just kind of like a good hang whereas in season one zelda was like such a main part about like how hazel was going to escape and um even though i i liked that as like a twist to it all um i I definitely think giving zelda a voice (laughs) and letting her like develop these relationships i found to be pretty fun um i think it also kind of allowed the show to be uh about hazel reckoning with herself which i find to be a lot more interesting than her reckoning with this abusive relationship um and obviously that's kind of like they hit you over the head with it by having Mm -hmm. her consciousness literally take over her body and do like a very um legion-esque episode (laughs) where it's like you know bad hazel versus original hazel or conscious hazel versus original hazel but um I i think it all still like worked and was pretty pretty interesting to watch Totally. Yeah, I, I thought Magnuson did a really nice job, too, because, again, his character is on, on the back foot this time. It's it's a different side of Byron. Um, but I think he's really just proven himself as a winning performer. You know, I thought it was fantastic, and No Time to Die should have been the main villain, for yeah. being honest. And uh, agree. he's already proven himself in other smaller roles like Game Night. But at the end of the day, the show is really a milliardi vehicle, and she's just really just dynamite in the role. So I look, I look forward to a season three if they do... Uh, move forward with one yeah just to kind of highlight one of the points i made at the beginning i think romano especially in those later episodes when he's you know talking to hazel about wanting to pass away on his own terms and stuff like that i thought that was really effective from him and seeing him just kind of like enjoy the what's it called the sphere or the the hub enjoy like everything that the hub has to offer i thought was like really fun and like it's nice to like see someone taking advantage of it that way um and then to kind of get like the emotional moments at the end, I was like, ah, Ray Romano, man, he's he's talented right. guy. Appreciate yeah. that. So I thought they ma- they made a nice choice for he he quickly got on to the fact that they were drugging him and treating his cancer. Like they didn't then uh, play that out. They 
got to more interesting material, which, as you said, was him in the hub and, and playing things off and playing dumb and everything like that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think Romano's probably the MVP of the series just because he, he brings so much to that part, as you said. Absolutely. Well, we hope that Season 3 comes back, but let's move forward to Season 1 of a show that dropped on Hulu this past weekend, Conversations with Friends. Uh, the the Sally Rooney novel that's been adapted uh, by Hulu again uh, after Normal People, which check out a review on Normal People. Uh, search uh, Normal People and Nostalgia Pod. Um, yeah, normal People was just a, it was a moment, you know, a, a pandemic moment. Uh, people just found it and loved it and it's kind of amazing to think about. Uh, I mean, where does it where does it sit in your your mind now that we're like a few years removed from it? Right. I I love Normal People, the series. I have not read the Sally Rooney novel. I haven't read Conversations with Friends or her third novel that came out last year. Conversations with Friends, notably the debut Rooney novel, Normal People, the debut Rooney adaptation. I thought that Normal People was fantastic i think it was my number four show 2020 absolutely loved it i think obviously huge part of it is that paul mescal and daisy edgar jones two star making performances just blow up your screen chemistry between them but the show you know with uh lenny aberson's direction and alice birch's writing who are back again for conversation with friends they brought i think a real like intentional approach to the intimacy of Connell and Marianne in normal people. Mm-hmm. That was really mind blowing. And on top of that, sex scenes between two really hot people were also really good by, while still being very tasteless. So something for everyone in that regards. You know, I think normal people in hindsight makes a lot of sense as that first adaptation, even though it's the second book, because normal people is a bit more traditional. It's a love story between two people, and we get to see both of their point of views. Conversation with friends is a bit messier because we really only have one point of view, but it's about this complicated web of relationships between four people. So a bit more challenging to have all those things be more harmonious than normal people, which I think was a bit more straightforward to tell as a story. Yeah, you know, when I think about normal normal people, I think about just the electricity and the chemistry between Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar Jones, and it's just like, uh, you know, that unfairly, I think conversations with friends is going to be compared to this, and it's like, yeah. oh, how are you going to replicate that once in a you know lifetime chemistry between these two unknown leads? Uh, it didn't happen, and it, I think for that, this series left me. Uh, just not as engaged as I was with normal people. Um, I, I still think there's some good performances, but you know, it, it really it unfairly, I, in my mind, I'm like, ah, oh, well, this isn't that, or it's not, you know, mm-hmm. not, not that moment for normal people. And I think there's still some good storytelling here, but yeah. it just, it just wasn't normal people. And that it's a, it's a hard perspective, I think, to like put it up against it. Yeah. I mean, this is on BBC across the pond, but here in the States, it's on Hulu, and I keep seeing Hulu ads for 
an upcoming film was it uh when where, where the crawdads sing starring daisy edgar jones i keep getting reminded of her because she's obviously blowing up right now having a huge year with that and under the banner of heaven and fresh obviously and more to come surely but yeah i keep being like wow you know what joe alwyn you're not as fun to look at as paul mescal <laughs> you know still incredibly handsome i mean he is yeah just like crazy and, and Alison Oliver in her in her first role as Francis. It's like, well, you know, I see some similarities to Marianne. Sure, perhaps that's just the way Sally Rooney writes her characters. Again, I don't know. I haven't read the books, but yeah, I couldn't help but think about things I liked about normal people while watching Conversations with Friends. And it isn't fair when you try, you should try and approach this in a vacuum. However, anyone who's read the books was also doing this when they watched Normal People because they had both books in their mind. And as far as I know, the conversation with friend book is more highly regarded than the normal people book. However, I think it's pretty obvious that the normal people series will be more highly regarded than the conversation with friends series. And that's okay. You know, I don't think conversation with friends the series is is bad by any means. I, I still think there's a lot lot to like about it. It just doesn't rise up and transcend so much the way normal people in the series did. So why don't we start with that? Because I feel like we have kind of started this review off on a negative foot. What were the aspects of season one of Conversations with Friends that you liked? Yeah, well, I, I think, again, like the it's very smart that they have the same creative team around Sally Rooney adapting and, and creating this with Abramson and Birch. It still looks awesome, you know, when they when they go to Croatia, when they're in Ireland, whatever it is. Uh, I really like it, and I think it, it all makes sense. It feels very real, you know, and I think that's good. It's also, I think, kind of cool that they have, because we have four characters, we don't have four unknowns here. We actually have two two knowns. We have Joe Alwyn and Jemima Kirk, who are, I, I think I'm more exposed to Jemima Kirk, to be honest, but Joe Alwyn, in, in smaller roles, I, I have enjoyed. Things like The Favorite come to mind. Um, they're both good performers, and I don't, Kirk is given less to do than I expected uh, when I started watching the series, but mm -hmm. I still think they do, uh, do, do really well. And um, Sasha Lane really grew on me uh, as Bobby, someone who I think I'd only seen, I guess, in, in small role in Loki, but I thought she yeah. was uh, quite engaging as well. And Alison Oliver as Francis also grew on me. I, I, I think, I think, I think the series is just, it didn't wrap me, grab me in the beginning as much, but once I was a bit closer to the story and had been in it, in it for a few hours, I think that's where I started to like it a bit more, even if I have some quibbles to pick about stuff with the plot. But yeah, I think overall it looks really nice. Performances are good. It's just, I think the key like narrative tension that just doesn't lend itself as well to, well to the, making a series is all. Yeah, you know, I, I think, as you kind of pointed out, the series does get stronger as it goes on. And I think that's partially a um, uh, mechanic of the script and the, the plot development. I mean, just inherently, you have a, a main character who is very guarded, very within herself, um, very emotionally like immature. And so as she's grappling with these things going on, she's not telling you so much about like how you're feel how she's feeling even as her relationship even as Francis's relationship with Nick begins to grow a lot of their conversations are very like 
they're very quiet. I mean, people are whispering all over the show. I could have used a you know a little bit louder. Just talk a little bit louder for me. But two introverts, they, man. They are, yeah, they are both introverts who are just not um, able to really express themselves, and so. While you definitely can take away some things from their physical performance, I think it just makes it hard to totally like sit with these characters. You know, right. um, I I think about uh, why Jemima Kirk and Sasha Lane probably jumped off to me so much. They're much more expressive um, mm-hmm. throughout the show when, when you do get time with them, and it, that that that's communicating something more to me than a lot of the interactions we get with Nick and Francis. But near the end, you know, like a, the conversation they have in the bar um, about Nick's mental health issues uh, the year before Francis meets him. I thought Alwyn gives a really awesome monologue there. I thought um, both him and Oliver were really strong in that scene. And a lot of these scenes near the end where they're being more expressive with their emotions, I just found to be so much more enjoyable and captivating. And I just, yeah. I hope if there's a season two, we get a lot more of that than like these like toned down whispers in a room and than a, than a sex scene. Cause while, while the sex scenes, sure. Great. It's like nice to see beautiful people like being with each other. Like I, it, it really wasn't adding much to me uh, for me by like right. the end of the season. So yeah, totally. I, I think these sex scenes are still intimate, but they're not quite as explicit as the ones of normal people. Uh, still natural, though. You know, it's not like you're watching porn. I think that's very admirable that it's like portrays like accurate sex scenes on the screen. It's good. Um, yeah, I think that's the thing with me. It's like a lot of these. Like, I, I feel like Nick and Francis, especially in the beginning, like they're not they're not like super fun to be with or, or, or the yeah. most likable characters I've ever seen. It's like, I think a big part of this too is like, it's not just like star-crossed lovers, like normal people, which is much easier to wrap your head around and get invested in. In conversation with friends, we're talking about like infidelity, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a lot grayer. And, you know, I think when, when Francis is like getting her heart broken by Nick's unwillingness to communicate how he feels about her or, whether he's going to commit or not and like she's just can't get over it and like finally bobby basically like says it it's like you know like you're the mistress or you know like she he's cheating on his wife with you like grow up a little bit like this is not supposed to fuck you up like this you know Mm -hmm. and i think that that was a, a bit of a sticking point with me a little bit where it's like you know it's like I'm just not invested as much in as much as like this conflict for you because like you, you like it's 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 infidelity and like Bobby actually says it you know don't be moralistic about this it's his job to worry about his own marriage which is fine it's right but like I just couldn't help but like be super uh just a little frustrated I guess with like the fact that this is also a very introverted quiet character who can't express herself and it's like okay well like have a little ownership of where you're at in this life. You know, I think Mm -hmm. for what I understand, the book does a better job of explaining her thoughts on money and like the kind of reference to the fact that she, Oh, she's a communist in the first episode. They never really touch it again in the series. I think that's a bit more explained to the reader in the book from what I understand, but like, they're just, I think a bunch of ticks with the Francis character. It's like, I just, I just want you to get the shit together a little bit better is all. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think for some people, they probably really like seeing a character like this. But for me, it was a bit uh, a bit frustrating as well. Yeah, the the conversation, the conversation with a friend, not really a friend at this point, that really, I think, hit home for me was when uh, Francis in the last episode calls Jemima Kirk, calls Melissa, 
to like ask her why she shared the story she wrote about her breakup with Bobby that's being published and caused Bobby to, um, you know, un- unfriend her, defriend her, however you want to put it. And uh, Jemima Kirk delivers, I think, probably what I was like screaming in my head the whole time like your actions have consequences like you are responsible for the choices that you make and i think that that's such a fair criticism you know as and i was so so fascinated i I wish we saw more of what was going on with nick and melissa as they navigated this third party into their relationship and obviously it's not the first time something like that happened there they reference uh melissa's infidelities quite a few times in the season but I find that so fascinating to like see how they communicate and uh, come to an agreement and understanding of how this third person is going to kind of uh, interact within their marriage. And I, I think the criticisms that Bobby has of Francis, of her being, you know, self-centered, of her feeling like other people's feelings aren't real all the time, really is like a, a point that stuck out to me because. Uh, it feels like she's just kind of like, oh, I have this boyfriend who has this other person who he's married to, and she just didn't like expect them to be fucking, didn't expect them to be having like intimate moments. It was like kind yeah. of bizarre at times, and I think highlights the the character as someone who is flawed, and that's that's important. I I, I think if she was a perfect protagonist, this wouldn't be interesting at all. But um, definitely did not find it as fun of a hang to be watching this affair. Um, although I do think they do a pretty good job of uh, coloring in the gray areas of like why Melissa may be okay with this going on or why, um, right. you know, like they might negotiate that in a relationship. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I don't have a whole lot more to say. I just, I think part of it's just, just the challenge of adaptation sometimes, but also just, I think because it's a more complicated uh, scenario, it's just harder to figure out where you as a viewer lie. Like I said, normal people, much more straightforward, which is not a bad thing at all. I think if anything, it just helps you get invested faster. So I'm still happy I watched the series and I wouldn't be surprised that if Sally Rooney's third novel that came out last fall eventually gets adapted as well. There hasn't been any news on that at this point. You mentioned the season two. I mean, as far as I know, this was a full adaptation of the novel. So mm-hmm. if we were to get a season two, it would have to be like a Big Little Lies season two kind of thing where the author helps adapt a new season of a series, even though the book has already been wrapped up. So interesting thought. I wonder if Hulu and BBC are interested in going that way. Um, but I think I'd probably be more interested in just seeing that third book, seeing what's up with that, because... I'm probably not going to read the book, so I'll just wait for the show. <laughs> yeah, I would like a. I think I'd like a second season just to see like how things play out between Nick and Bobby, as it seems like Francis is like pitting them against each other to fight. But even as I'm saying it, I'm like almost exhausted by it. So maybe not. Maybe just go on to the third book. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyways, conversation with friends. Check it out. Let us know what you think in the comments below. But let's move forward to the mid-season finale of Better Call Saul, season six. Uh, Dave, we, we reviewed the first two episodes. I think we both were were high on, on the way the season starts off. And I, I think Saul as a TV show is just consistently good. I was kind of left wondering, though, like, why did we need a mid-season finale? I know Breaking Bad did something similar, but like, 
right. Did you feel like it was really like necessary? Uh, well, they basically came out and said that it wasn't intentional. It wasn't filmed in this way. It was more of a production related issue where they basically had to release the series in this way and it just made sense so um i guess that kind of lets them off the hook that this wasn't really the intention of vince gilligan when he's making the series and i think i think i think part of that is due to the health issues that happened with bob odenkirk where the series basically had to stop yeah. I, I think that's part of it and i guess what that would tell us is that the subsequent uh six episodes that will come back starting july 11th they're just not finished. I think that's what we're being told by this. So, yeah, it didn't need a mid-season finale. It's not something that I necessarily wanted, even though, like you said, I think Breaking Bad actually did it pretty effectively. Um, I'm curious how Stranger Things, it's going to feel with Stranger Things at the end of this week when we get most but not all of the, the season at once. So, yeah, it, it's not necessary, but... In the case of Saul, keeping the Saul train going just a little bit longer because you love it so much, uh, I'll take a six-week break to stew over it, yeah. Sure, yeah, and, and I think that's the the right take, is that if we get more Saul, like, just, just take it at this point, because this show is operating at such a high level, even though I think that there's a couple episodes in this first part of the last season that felt like filler or almost just trying to like slow it down a little bit to stretch it a little bit more um stretch the story out a bit i definitely always found myself enjoying the time with these characters and i just was like remarking last night as uh, we're going to talk about the the shocking uh, mid-season finale ending um i just kind of found myself like reflecting on where the show started and where it came to and where it's like ended up being you know it really was in those earlier seasons very methodical very much had that experience of jimmy mcgill in the uh early stages of becoming a lawyer pushing paper uh literally delivering the mail yes and it was very much like interested in those details and now certainly like it still cares about those details and uh I, i think um the show is incredibly meticulous still um it, it's just kind of gotten to like that breaking bad level where like crazy shit is happening you know it's yeah. it's pretty yeah. nuts now yeah I, I think um having seen this full full set of this first half of the final season it honestly is a lot of really awesome payoff for all the early saw stuff you just mentioned specifically kim and jimmy's scheme grand plan to ruin Howard because all of that is funded on what came before the core of Saul before Saul got increasingly closer to the cartel plots which of course would bring us right into Breaking Bad so the way that they've Gilligan and Gould have brought the Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad worlds together on Better Call Saul continues to impress me you can go on Reddit and see what people think, you know. I think uh, once we learned that Howard was hiring a PI, I think everyone was like, oh, is Howard going to ruin Kim's career? Is that what's yeah. going to happen to Kim, you know? I don't think anyone saw what we got coming, of course. But I, you know, I really enjoyed, like, seeing Sandpiper and Schweikert and Jack, uh, HHM come back into the fold mm-hmm. again. It's like, it, it felt like a great... Uh, you know, tying of the knot for everything that came before, but also still makes a lot of sense for what we're seeing with the with the cartel plots. And I mean, 
the fact that it's so compelling, so tension-filled, when in reality, there's now only two characters left that we don't directly know their fates, uh, which would be mm. Lalo and Kim. So, in a sense, you'd think that would answer questions and alleviate tension, but it does anything but, because we're so invested in Kim. And earlier in the season, uh, we got one of those answers, which was, what's, what's up with Nacho? What's going to happen to him? And I think it went the only way it really could, but it was still incredibly compelling watching him try and survive as long as he could, and then having this honestly heartbreaking final call to his oblivious father, but then yeah. getting to go out on his own terms the way he does. Um, I thought Michael Amanda was awesome mm-hmm. in that final episode. So uh, now we're still left with what's up with Lalo, what's going to happen to Kim, you know, and, and, and we expect to finally find out what happens in the present timeline with Jimmy now as Gene, you know, in the black and white scenes. So there's still so much like plot you want to learn about, but for what we got so far, I thought it was really effective at uh, tying off some loose ends in compelling ways. Yeah, I, I completely agree on the, on the nacho point and on the, the point about um, C, uh, Rhea Seahorn's uh, Kim and uh, Tony Dalton's uh, Lalo. Uh, those are characters that starting off, well, Lalo kind of comes in halfway, but like Nacho, Kim, and Lalo throughout the, the series have just been, I think, the highlights for me. And obviously, like Odenkirk, Michael Banks, uh, uh, Esposito are all firing on all cylinders. I think uh, I've really enjoyed seeing like the Mike Gus dynamic um, in yeah. this season and like mm-hmm. you know wh- where you see them in Breaking Bad they're such like a united front and kind of like on the same page all the time right, and here seeing them butt heads and go about things differently and kind of build that trusting relationship I thought was just really really fun to watch but yeah uh, why don't we talk about the the ending moment and kind of just Patrick Fabian as Howard in general yeah. who I think is just like dynamite in this in this whole like <laughs> the whole series but really this season I think he is just pitch perfect as Howard as uh, a you know, a character that's increasingly become more complicated. You kind of see him as very one dimensional, cold, calculated lawyer who's just like dedicated to almost like like machine like in the way he goes about his work, um, and the way he makes decisions. Um, and how his relationship with Chuck, you know, draws the ire of Jimmy and kind of leaves Jimmy to uh focus some of his negative uh behaviors on him. But where you know, that like that final scene with Howard where he's just undressing them and Lalo comes in. I mean, that was just like a holy shit moment. Like uh, the, the candle kind of fl- flicking oh, you know, as Howard entered and then you see it again. And then you just see Lalo like, like fucking jaws behind him. Like it was just mm-hmm. like incredible. I just I was like so struck by that. And was, I was like, yeah, Gilligan still got it. Now I, I think I've seen a lot of people really loving it. And I think it, there were parts of it where I was like, Oh man, like that, that, I, that wasn't how I wanted Howard to go out. And I also didn't know if that's necessarily like how I was hoping like the season would turn. But as I've sat with it more today, I'm just like, yeah, that was a great, great TV moment. I literally was like, what the fuck? Like after it ended and mm-hmm. uh, Dalton's just so great too. So yeah, talk a little bit about your thoughts on Fabian in this season. Right. Well, well, I, I think, I think it's really brilliant because they, they do such a good job of paying off this scheme from Jimmy and Kim in this episode where they embarrass Howard and ruin HHM's chance of getting a bigger settlement from Schweigart for the Sandpiper, uh, you know, uh, elderly people, you know, uh, a plot point that's been ongoing since early part of the show. The show. But the, when, when you watch Howard get ruined 
professionally in that manner by Jimmy and Kim, and you see it in unfolding. You're, you're always rooting for Jimmy and Kim, but like it's really the first time they really feel for Howard in such a genuine way because he's always been just kind of a tertiary antagonist, uh, like as you said, his relationship with the Chuck and whatnot. And to see, see, see that go, go down, but also see that uh, he's still very capable. Howard's still really capable, and he immediately sees what's happened to him. But yeah. he can't convince anyone else that that's actually true. And it's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then when he goes to the house and he's like, he's like, you know, you just get off of this. You guys just think this is fun. You guys are fucked up people, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know what? They are. And the fact yeah. that we just see them, like, it's kind of like a swan song for Howard's character, which I think the post Chuck's death was a character that didn't serve as much of a narrative purpose, uh, you know, moment to moment in those uh, the past like two seasons or so. Right. But it's such a great swan song for the character because not only does it bring Jimmy and Kim fully back into the cartel the way it does, obviously because of Lalo here, but uh, it was, I I didn't, didn't see the Howard character having a grace note like this. I I didn't, I didn't think it would be nearly this interesting, but that it, it set up for half a season's arc to get us to this point. And they just executed flawlessly in this, this episode. Yeah, and you know they they really do a good job, I think, of building out Howard as a character this season. You know, you see him like go to therapy. You see the relationship with his wife at home and what that's like, and just kind of how he has like these <clears throat> two sides to him that really um, conflict. You know, this one very emotional side and this one very like cold, calculated lawyer side. And I think building that out not only helps you to really like Howard more because I mean. For a lot of the the series, while I think you understand Jimmy's being a huge asshole to Howard throughout all this and undeservingly targeting him for his feelings towards his brother and their relationship, um, Howard doesn't necessarily come across as sympathetic a lot of the time. You know, he's he's pretty cut and dry as like the head of this company and like I've said a dozen times now, very much like calculated and just focused on the mission of how do I you know, win this case or how do I manage this? And so building him out as a character in this season, I thought they did a wonderful job of that really makes that final moment for him even more effective. And yeah, I mean, it just, that moment also, you can literally feel the terror in the room, you know, very similar to the moment. I can't remember if it was season five or season four, when Lalo confronts Kim and, and I think it was last season, season five, when he confronts Kim and Jimmy in the, uh, in their home, before and Mike has the sniper rifle on him and it's just you know that that tension that air gets sucked right out of the room and you're just terrified and yeah and Tony Dalton man I mean his performance of Lalo just like I mentioned kind of is like that Jaws character just lurking through a lot of this season kind of piecing together what is Gus doing going to what he went to Denmark right like Uh, it was uh I mean bringing back uh Varner's widow into it i was like holy shit did not expect to see this this is crazy and then then we see lalo in his psychopathic glory sitting in the fucking sewer spying on the lab it's like oh my god this is amazing hilarious moment when you see his head pop up like i was just like this is fucking pennywise yeah for real (laughs) uh yeah amazing moment and he's just he's so his ability to like go from being so charming to so psychopathic like so quickly it's just like 
yeah. man, he's operating at such a high level on this. And the the that call between him and and Hector when Hector's like pressing the button because he knows that the phone is wiretapped and he notices afterwards like that's that's the type of shit that only Saul does this well I guess like Saul and like David Simon like does this yeah totally this well so right really like a pleasure to watch right and like I I I didn't see the 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 very ending that we got because like it's like oh Lalo sees through the fact that they're tapping him they set up that uh Mike and Gus are gonna go all hands on deck protect Gus at the secret safe house and then Lyle's is going to waltz into the lab that's lightly guarded and fuck shit up. I was like, okay, cool. Wow, that's going to be going to be awesome. I didn't expect to see Lalo go directly back to Jimmy and Kim. And then off Howard, obviously. So I'm curious to see where the cartel stuff picks back up, because you know that Lalo's going to the lab soon. But what does he need to know f- from Jimmy and Kim? What does he need them to do for him? I have no idea. Yeah, uh, definitely interested. I can't wait to see what the last half of this has. I mean, any predictions for the part two? I mean, we know we're going to see Cranston and um, Aaron Paul. Plemons, yeah, um, at some no, point. But... Not Plemons, Aaron Paul. Oh, Aaron Paul, sorry, wow. Yeah. I right. mean, I guess we could um, see Plemons. He's he's alive in this timeline. Um, yeah. Probably not. He was in El- Wasn't he in El Camino a little bit in his flashbacks? So. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have really no idea how we're going to see Walt and Jesse. You know, I'm really curious what that is. Um, I can't imagine present day Gene is going to go find Jesse in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's going to be a flashback of some kind. I just don't know how it connects to the plot, you know, because, like, I, I really have no idea. I really don't know. Um, yeah, and I, I, I mean, either I don't really have predictions for anything else either. I'm just really curious to see what the fuck happens with Kim. You know, Lalo. I we know that Lalo isn't going to succeed because you know Don Eladio and Gus Fring and Mike Urban Trout they're all alive and in their power in Breaking Bad. So we know yeah. that Lalo isn't going to win, but he's going to do something big, and I want to know what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in that. I, I want you to plant your flag. Does Kim survive the series? Yeah, I saw some people saying that maybe she does survive and like is off on her own in present day and then they reconnect. I don't think it's going to be that happy. I think something bad happens. Um, I don't know how. Yeah. I, I, I think she's gone. I, I have, think she's toast. I have the same feeling that she's probably not going to make it, but last night's episode made me think, hmm, maybe, maybe she is. You know, I think having so many characters off at this point and also like thinking about how we haven't gotten any of the flash forwards this season. Right. I mean, it's Gene. Uh, it feels like there has to be some sort of like redemption arc for Gene. It can't just be like, he's this disgraced Cinnabon worker now. I, I, I don't know. It feels like there has to be something more to it, but we'll see. I mean, maybe he goes to find Je- uh, Jesse Flint or sorry, Jesse Flint. Jesse is his name in the show. Jesse so confused. <laughs> uh, Aaron Paul. Jesse Pinkman, yeah. Uh, maybe he goes to find Aaron Paul, but like that'd be so random. Like, just gonna go hang out with this guy who I Gosh. had like I don't know three hours of interaction with in total. I don't know. It's strange. So yeah, we'll see where it ends. But you gotta watch Saul, man. It's so good. Yeah, it'll be good, whatever it is. I have no doubt. Why don't we wrap up today with Atlanta season three? Last Ooh-wee. episode aired this past weekend, and. 
you know, Atlanta is a show that we love for performances. We love for the way it tells stories and conceptualizes things. And Atlanta this season was just like, we know you love us for this, but we're just going to do it our way. And this season, I think, challenged a lot of people. Oh, it definitely dude. challenged me at points. And I'm wondering, did you leave this season being like, Atlanta is still top tier? Or are you like, ah, maybe they, they took a step back this this time? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I think Atlanta is... The bona fides have been established. We both had this show in our best shows of the decade. Even though we only had seen two seasons of said show. Season one and two are certified in that regard it's season three is super challenging i think the show's still got it whether you're satisfied and directly entertained can be two different things you know and i think mm. the effectiveness of what you watch really depends on what lens you're approaching atlanta season three by far the most polarizing season of the series most unpredictable season of the series you know i think in a sense I appreciate the creativity because from what we understand, Lakeith Stanfield, Brian Tyree Henry, Donald Glover, Zazie Beats, they're all stars now. They are busy fucking people. So they couldn't be together as much as they could in the past season. So in a sense, this was their workaround. I don't know if I necessarily expected to see three complete one-off episodes and then a bunch of other basically like non, non-sequiturs around like one character. It's not that like a non-sequitur or something that seems insignificant is new to Atlanta. Of course it is. We don't watch Al become the biggest rapper in Atlanta. It's all off screen. We haven't watched Al become an international rap star either. That's also happened on, on screen this, with this season. It's all about these other little interludes. That's what's interesting to them. And yeah, I, I think this is a very fascinating season because I definitely didn't expect it to go this way. Me neither. Um, pretty much, like, every other episode was this uh, non-main crew episode that was exploring these one-off stories, whether it's, um, you know, the Robert S. Lee High School uh, Rich Wigger, Poor Wigger episode, um, whether it was, um, you know, them exploring, uh, what was it in, like, the early... Uh, Season they had, like, totally they had the one with about reparations with Justin. Bartha. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yep. Yes. So that one. Um, I, I mean, they really were trying to go for something, right? Even the beginning of the season starts off with none of the main characters, but this story about uh, black people being killed in that lake in Atlanta that I'm totally blanking yeah. on as well. But right. um, it's, it, you know, they really tried a lot of stuff, but it, it did take you away from the parts that really make the show, I think, hum and great. You know, if, if you were getting Seinfeld without Jerry and George together for multiple episodes on end, or if you were getting Elaine just singularly with other characters that we don't know, you're going to kind of be like, oh, I don't know. This isn't why I watch Seinfeld. And I'm not saying that this made the season of Atlanta bad, but it just yeah. wasn't what I wanted. And that's, I think, what the show is really trying to get at this season. I, I suspect season four will be more of the gang together as the final season and i assume that they've probably thought about what they want to say um about atlanta in general as a place of what it means to them but this season they really were like yep we're not going to give you anything that you really want and mm -hmm. it 
it was definitely challenging at times, but still a lot of really memorable moments. So I think there's a lot to still like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like I think they're still going and trying to comment and say things the way they do in typical Atlanta fashion. It's just as you said, you're not getting it in the way you expect. We have these four characters, these four performers that have really high approval ratings. Brian Tyree Henry, one of the best actors working right now, full stop. That's beyond beyond a doubt, I think, at this point. Lakeith as well, right up there. Um, but I, I would I would rather like see them give these uh comments off right than, than one these one off episodes, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's still tons of moments of brilliance when you do see uh our core cast in spurts. You know, I thought uh the new jazz episode was brilliant, you know, the way they bring in uh, Liam Neeson playing himself in the cancel club. What a complete moment. heel turning at the end too. Oh my god, dude. Yeah, and they get such buy-in from their guests, whether it's Neeson or Skarsgard in the finale, obviously. <laughs> Chet Hanks just basically like being himself in it. I was like, damn, these they're all really in on it. And yeah, you know, just to talk about the the Neeson thing, he very much could have used this as like a way to kind of like walk back things and be yeah, like, yeah, you know, his personality for black people. And when yeah. he takes that turn in his monologue where he's like, no, I can't stand a lot of you. I, my mouth literally dropped to the floor. I was like, Liam Neeson is on TV saying this on like one of the most popular yeah. shows. Like, and I get that this is this, that episode was kind of framed as like a, a you know, drug induced dream for right. classic uh, Amsterdam. Yeah. For Alfred. But man, that was that moment. I just like literally couldn't believe it. I thought that was incredible. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think this this season did rely a lot on like some of those guest appearances, though. Like you mentioned the Skarsgård one. What was your temperature on that? Yeah, I thought the Skarsgård performance again. You, yeah, you have such buy-in. Like he's playing a guy who gets off on being like completely negged by his uh, girlfriend, right? He's only jerking off after <laughs> what happens to him. It's like. Mm-hmm dancing in uh, underwear and stuff you know it's like it's it's really fun to see Skarsgård uh, just just play a weirdo like that but playing himself playing the weirdo you know um a bit more of a, on the provocation side of things is in the uh, Rich Wigga episode you have Kevin Samuels coming in obviously a very polarizing recently past uh figures probably much more I think well known in the black community than in general culture but um, having him be the one who's like being the benefactor for all black students at the school is like, oh wow, but you have Kevin Samuels being the one expounding mm-hmm. that. Interesting, thought provoking, I suppose, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in overall, I, I like these guys, even Justin Bartha, you know, nice to see him, obviously. Mm-hmm. Shout out the yeah. hangover um, in the reparations episode. I thought he did a really good job. And I thought that was my favorite of the one-off episodes pretty easily because I thought it was really definitely thought-provoking. Obviously, I think us watching it as white people definitely probably have a different reaction than uh, other people watching it, uh, people of color, black people for sure, you know, but like think, watching them like play out this like rep- reparations scenario in this way, it's like, wow, you know, it's just, I, I think like the whole Donald Lover, Stephen Lover, Stephanie Robinson creative force with this show, at the end of the day, they're making you think a lot but they managed to get thematically even i think bigger with this series or at least switch it up a little bit blackness has been a huge aspect of the first two seasons and how blackness affects these characters and how they 
interface in the world, they take it a step further in season three because it's almost more about how whiteness affects people in the world, both white people and also how it affects black people and usually how it affects people negatively. And I, I was really impressed with how they kind of thematically kind of like took that next step forward in this regard, especially in a series that, like you said, often feels more like the Twilight Zone than it yeah. does Atlanta season one and two. So I think there's a lot to uh, admire here, and it definitely increases my anticipation for season four because I want to see what the hell it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to see. I mean, uh, it's hard to predict anything with this show, but we do get a bit of a stinger at the end where the white Ernest Marks, you know, uh, Ernest, it's a bag for the white Ernest Marks and it very much feels like a horror vibe to it um so I I feel like there's going to be something about that dynamic that's probably going to be a running through line but I I also have to suspect kind of like I was mentioning before that in this fourth season they're going to probably not be in Europe (laughs) I imagine that they have to go back to Atlanta and I also imagine that they have to kind of like try to tie together what why the show is called Atlanta and what it really means to them, what it's supposed to symbolize in terms of blackness and race politics um, in in terms of what they're going for in the show. You know, I one of the episodes that really stands out to me is that one where they're having the party. I think it was The Old Man and the Tree, episode three. Oh, I love that one. That was great. That was the great most episode. classic Atlanta episode, traditional one, yes. I think. And, and I loved almost what everybody was doing there. But the, the aspect that I found to be most interesting was um the the rich guy who was funding the black artist who everybody thought was just terrible and they were like <laughs> yeah it, like we we know but like why are you gonna spoil this for us exactly <laughs> um and that was that was i think one of the things that i found most appealing about this season in terms of the main characters was you see Ern become competent which is really nice and you also see yeah. him and his relationship with alfred really growing you know after um alfred has that that fever dream he Ask him who who has his masters. Now it's a bit on the nose, and you know it's maybe not the most creative writing that the show has ever done, but it really is, a, I think, an important moment to like build the connection between these characters. And you kind mm-hmm. of get some of those moments between Darius and Ban earlier in the season as they're kind of gallivanting around um, parts of Europe together, as Alfred and uh, Ern are doing some of their own stuff. So I, th- I thought it was nice to see the character development when we got it. Just wish we got more of it. Exactly. Yeah. Any any other thoughts? Are you ready to wrap up? In all likelihood, we'll be talking about season four later in this year. They shot these back to back. They said it's coming out this year, so probably in the fall. I'd have to imagine. So it's been a hell of a run, and can't wait to see what what's next. I, I don't think they're going out on a low note. That's for sure. So we'll uh, be highly anticipating that. I agree. So let's let's wrap it up there. What do we got for next week, Dave? So next week we got, I think. A few really important things here. Top Gun Maverick, the hype is high. We Own This City has been going great on HBO. Obi-Wan Kenobi, first two episodes coming out on Disney+. Plus. Also, Norm MacDonald, the late Norm MacDonald, filmed a comedy special that we're getting on Netflix. And uh, we'll probably chime in on Survivor Season 42 as well, which is wrapping up uh, this week. So, And who knows, maybe Star Wars Celebration throws some unexpected news and announcements mm. for us. TBD there. Let's hope. Uh, so follow us at NostalgiaPod on Twitter and hit that subscribe on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.